0: Part 3, Apartheid's Domestic Endgame. Chapter 12, Domestic Opposition. The people inside South Africa have recognized that victory will come as a result of their struggle, their own efforts, as a result of their reliance on themselves. O.R. Tambo, October 1984. As the 1980s receded into the past, the broad historical forces undermining apartheid and creating conditions for negotiations were thrown into clearer relief. At the time, the economy was stagnating, with investment barely replacing capital stock for more than two decades. The economic nationalism of the ruling National Party was incompatible with the political economy of the new era, and government was unable to attract inward investment secure transfers of technology, or access growing global markets. At home, the power of organized labor grew, influx control gradually crumbled, and the urban black population relentlessly increased. The Soviet economic crisis, meanwhile, undercut South Africa's protected status as a client of Western powers. While these developments suggested that a change of regime would one day become inescapable, organized political opposition was required to close down the National Party's avenues for evasion and delay. In this 1980s endgame of the struggle against apartheid, domestic rather than international actors played the decisive role. Within the domestic arena, moreover, it was disorganized local protest and ungovernability rather than the stratagems of opposition political leaders which posed the greatest threat to the regime. Nevertheless, when state oppression deepened after 1986 and popular unrest swelled up in response, the trade union movement was to play a crucial role in bringing the regime to the negotiating table. The Lusaka ANC's interpretation of the end of apartheid perhaps unsurprisingly credited the liberation movement itself as the decisive actor. Yet by the 1980s the exile movement was close to organizational collapse and Oliver Tambo's much-heralded diplomatic strategy had united the Western powers and the Soviet bloc in condemnation that remained mostly rhetorical. Howard Burrell has suggested that most ANC exiles had an anachronistic and unrealistic understanding of how change would come in South Africa. They treated armed struggle as the central feature of ANC operational strategy, the ultimate aim of which was the forcible overthrow of the South African state. Yet by the mid-1980s the armed struggle was patently a military failure, remaining at a very low level of intensity and posing no military threat to the regime. Indeed, the movement's military adventurism was probably counterproductive because, for domestic and Western audiences, it justified Pretoria's repression and refusal to negotiate. Burrell's position may be exaggerated. As former MK leader Ronnie Casseroles and Soviet Africa specialist Vladimir Shubin have observed, MK's capacity to strike grew over the decades and the psychological impact of its actions on the government and the white population may have predisposed them to accept a need for negotiations. The ANC leadership was, in any event, unable to change strategy, in part because it held that fundamental political change necessarily entailed the use of violence, and the brutal humiliations of apartheid appeared to require an armed response. Most importantly, the ANC derived an immense political dividend from armed struggle. The authority and popularity that armed struggle gave the ANC explains the paradox in its trajectory. The more it failed, the more it succeeded. At home, meanwhile, popular discontent grew in Soweto's aftermath, but young people and students were a poor match for a militarized state. By the end of the 1970s, Local political leaders were calling for concerted action by the youth, organized labor, churches and community groups known as civics. The National Party government precipitated just this organization of political protest in 1983 by introducing a tricameral parliament that promised to exclude Africans permanently from power and to fob off colored and Indian demands with greatly circumscribed own affairs privileges. In his memoirs, F. W. de Klerk exhibits well the hypocrisy behind these constitutional reforms, explaining that as a junior minister at the time, he became concerned about the forced removal and racial segregation of coloreds and Indians. The more I got to know the coloreds, the more ambivalent I became and the less enthusiasm I had for our official policy. As for Indians, de Klerk, was brought up on the basis that one should never do business with Indians or buy anything from them. But as a young practicing attorney, I had a few Indian clients and quickly established a good relationship with the local Indian community. It soon became clear to me that they were not getting a square deal, presumably, in de Klerk's eyes, in contrast to Africans'. At a January 1983 Transvaal conference to oppose the new constitution, a brilliant Cape Town orator, the Reverend Alan Busak, called for a new united front against apartheid. When excited delegates departed at the conference's close, they were determined to create regional structures that could unite civic associations, students, trade unions and churches. The united democratic front, was formally launched in Mitchell's play in Cape Town in August 1983. It adopted the key philosophical underpinning of non-racialism, testifying to the hitherto unsuspected strength of congress-aligned organisations after a decade of opposition seemingly dominated by black consciousness. While the United Democratic Front was never merely a front for the exiled ANC, Its affiliates mostly adopted the Freedom Charter. As the decade progressed, it was disorganized rather than organized protests that became of most concern for the regime. The UDF and Exile ANC began to articulate a demand that the people make the country ungovernable. But this call was more a reaction than a spur to what were largely autonomous localized protests. In 1984, a progression of small but violent insurrections began in the Valle Triangle, quickly spreading to the East Rand, Natal, the Eastern Cape, and Orange Free State. Neither ANC influence nor UDF leadership had initiated or shaped these events, even if UDF member organizations were often involved in them, and ANC symbols played a prominent role in the theater of violence they unleashed. The Liberation Movement's attempt to capitalize on these uprisings was tactically inept. A minority of astute exiles recognized that domestic flashpoints might best be used to attract new cadres and to shape them into the disciplined underground that the ANC so evidently lacked. The dominant view among the exile leadership, however, was that township defense committees could be quickly transformed into combat groups that would challenge the apartheid regime. As a result of this miscalculation, Omkonto Wesizwe undertook a mass infiltration of 150 poorly equipped and undertrained trained cadres in 1985-6, an effort that briefly doubled MK's presence on the ground before inevitable capture and death at the hands of state security services restored the status quo. Meanwhile, the violence of insurrectory African youth began to drive a wedge between those proponents of liberation discourse and the coloured and Indian activists who had a rights-based understanding of UDF objectives. When the state of emergency was introduced in 1986, experienced leaders were detained across the country. The youth, and sometimes komtsotsis or criminals, took control of many UDF affiliates, Undermining community control and leading to escalating levels of violence. The impotence of ANC exiles and UDF moderates alike was brought home by the famous words of Winnie Mandela on the 13th of April 1986. In Muncieville, near Krugersdorp, she declared that, together, hand in hand, with that stick of matches, with our necklace, we shall liberate this country. The previous year's widely publicised necklacing in Bortle and Duduza had already provoked Desmond Tutu's famous threat to pack my bags, collect my family and leave this beautiful country. For her speech, Winnie Mandela was demonised in white South Africa and abroad. She later claimed to George Bezos that her words were a reaction against a notorious apartheid atrocity. I'd been to the Goniwe funeral... As is the custom, I had to view the burnt bodies, and I became very bitter, and this is why I said it. Yet Murphy Morobi was later to tell the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that one of the most probable interpretations of Mandela's speech was a call to activists to kill police collaborators. In his biography of Nadine Gordimer, No Cold Kitchen, Ronald Suresh Roberts re-examines this troubling period in South Africa's history by distinguishing between what he calls settler and native understandings of necklacing. The settlers, on this view, condemned this act of violence primarily in order to deny the capacity of the natives to be civilized. What kind of human beings, such condemnations implied, could commit such a dreadful act? The natives of the liberation movement, on Roberts' account, were in fact engaged in a painful but necessary debate about the efficacy of the necklace as an instrument of armed struggle. Roberts uncovers evidence of equivocation among the ANC leadership around necklacing in 1985 and 1986. Oliver Tambo, for example, argued that they were not happy with the necklace but would not condemn those driven to use it. Roberts quotes notes made by Nelson Mandela's lawyer Ishmael Ayob during a meeting between Nelson and Winnie Mandela in Polesmoor Prison on the 19th of May 1986. Nelson Mandela approved of Winnie Mandela's necklace speech. He said that it was a good thing as there had not since been one black person who has attacked Winnie Mandela According to Roberts, Ayob's notes were available to Nelson Mandela's official biographer, the late Anthony Sampson, but they were excised from the manuscript of that biography on the instructions of the former president's office. Mandela himself observed in his autobiography that a freedom fighter learns the hard way that it is the oppressor who defines the nature of the struggle, and the oppressed is often left no resource but to use the methods that mirror those of the oppressor. Such words suggest to Roberts that rather than being the saint or teddy bear that Gordimer imagines him to be, Mandela is a man of profoundly practical moral wisdom whose reconciliatory achievements were all the greater because he was able to shoulder responsibility for the harder chapters of the 1980s struggle. There are, of course, reasons to question Roberts' claim that the ANC equivocation resulted from strategic and moral deliberation about the role of the necklace in armed insurrection. First, Nelson Mandela's words, at face value at least, are explicitly personal. Roberts does not convincingly link an incarcerated husband's consolatory comments to his embattled wife to any wider political debate within the liberation movement. Second, Roberts is wrong to view necklacing as a calculated political intervention that could be directed from outside the communities in which it occurred. Burning was not political assassination. The use of fire invoked symbolic purification to destroy evil. It allowed young men to assert fleeting control over their desperate lives. And it demonstrated the determination of communities to enforce their own local moral codes in fact necklacing was part of a continuum of violence that preceded and outlived the political turmoil of the mid-1980s its victims were mostly not collaborators at all joanna ball's study for the center for the study of violence and reconciliation shows that a wave of burnings began as early as 1976 Initially, the victims were described as witches and only later were they labelled collaborators or criminals. Of 65 burnings she studied between 1984 and 1993, Ball found that 39 followed witchcraft accusations. Just 15 were political killings of collaborators, policemen or political enemies. She speculates that these victims shared the same fate because they were each viewed as traitors who corroded the cohesion and integrity of their communities. More recent studies show that necklacing and other burnings continued after 1994. In the democratic era, however, the traitors have been described in police and media reports not in political terms, but rather as drug dealers, gangsters, or as foreigners fallen foul of vigilante killers. Third, far from being a potential instigator of tactical necklacing, the ANC was an impotent and distant observer. The words of then ANC Secretary-General Alfred Nzo, in an interview with the London Times, captured the exile leader's powerlessness perfectly. Whatever the people decide to use to eliminate those enemy elements is their decision. If they decide to use necklacing, we support it. Necklacing remained a punishment primarily meted out within and by the members of local communities. The equivocation of ANC leaders testifies to their unwillingness to admit their own impotence, rather than to any earnest but hypothetical moral deliberation that may have occurred among exiles and prisoners. James Matthews captures the horror these events invoked. We are living in spring's wasteland, man-woman stumble, their shoulders necklaced, with fire transforming them into blazing crosses, their deaths recorded by choirs of crows mocking their pain. We have turned ourselves into charnel houses, the reek of blood Heavy on our breath, our quest for freedom, make us night-stalkers, obscening the fields with charred flesh, stunted souls we are, drinking too deeply from poisoned wells. While most of the exile leadership remained wedded to a military overthrow of the apartheid state, the ANC also tried to develop a mass organisational base within South Africa, This ambitious plan was spelled out in some detail in a 1979 document of uncertain status in the ANC, commonly known as the Green Book. Its objectives were to elaborate a mass mobilization strategy, create a broad national front for liberation, and draw activists thrown up in mass struggle into the ANC's underground machinery. In response to the question which is the principal social force of our revolution, the Green Book responds that the principal and most consistent social force for the achievement of the aims of our national democratic revolution is the exploited and nationally oppressed working people in the towns and the landless mass in the countryside. In recognition of this fact, it determines that together with our ally, the South African Congress of Trade Unions, we must work for the strengthening of a trade union movement which genuinely represents the interest of the working class and ensure their organized participation in the struggle for national liberation. Notwithstanding the evident deference to Sactu and the fact that this was just one of many proposed programs, it does suggest renewed exile interest in organized labor as a vehicle for political opposition. Yet such organisation had to be carried out within South Africa by union activists who seemed to be forever at loggerheads. In the light of the increasingly unstable political environment outside the workplace in the early 1980s, debates raged inside trade unions about the appropriate strategy for political engagement. Were trade unions simply ameliorative in their effects, taking the edge off workers' appetite for fundamental change? Or were they indispensable instruments of political struggle, uniquely able to open workers' eyes to their ability to change the world? In the early 1970s, two main schools of thinking emerged. Some activists believed unions should be instruments for waging war against apartheid, and that workplace issues should be relentlessly linked to community protest. Unions that adopted this approach were often described as political or social movement unions, or as populist unions if the intention of the speaker was critical. Political union organisers, when they expressed allegiance to the ANC and its Freedom Charter, were labelled Charterists. An alternative philosophy represented primarily in the Federation of South African Trade Unions for SATU, favoured orthodox or collective bargaining unionisation. Such unions focused on shop floor organisation and worker control. The shop floor approach made them resilient in the face of oppression and detention. In the aftermath of the Vihan reforms, with their sets of recognition agreements and legal requirements, they were also bound tightly into the industrial relations system. In the eyes of charterists and political unionists, these constraints made them apolitical or even co-opted conservative organisations. However, some Fossatu leaders were radicals keen to link workplace issues with wider community politics. Orthodox organisers could also be workerists, who believed that a socialist workers' party would emerge out of rigorous trade union organization. Such critics of the bourgeois politics of the ANC and its Freedom Charter, most volubly Moses Moss Mayakiso of the Metal and Allied Workers Union, were also opponents of the Stalinist politics of the South African Communist Party. Union politics were further fragmented by the presence of unions affiliated to homeland parties and others committed to black consciousness approaches. As we have seen, the NUM's initial federation, KUSA, was not a black consciousness organization, even if it was later to emerge into a new black consciousness federation. But it did adhere to the rule that the leadership should be black. By contrast, for Satu and Charterists adhered to the principle of non-racialism, and this difference was to prove a stumbling block to unity talks. Ideological and political differences were supplemented by more practical issues of demarcation as competing unions often fought for control of overlapping aspects of the work process. Sometimes, as with Norm's own competition with other trade unions to organize mine workers, there were more direct rivalries over unambiguously the same group of workers. Such conflicts made unions unwilling to share information with one another about their respective membership figures and recruiting activities. Perhaps even more importantly, wealthy unions were jealous of their checkbooks and foreign sponsors and felt unhappy about pooling resources with less well-resourced comrades. Despite these obstacles to unity, the political logic of union rationalisation became increasingly inescapable. How could the workers continue to fight one another when they shared common foes in capitalism and apartheid. Unity Talks took place in Langa, Cape Town in 1981, in Wilkespreit and Port Elizabeth in 1982, in Athlone, Cape Town in 1983, and in Johannesburg in 1984. There were also endless bilateral meetings where conflicts over demarcation and organisation were sometimes successfully addressed. Over time... Union leaders developed a deeper understanding of what divided them and of the potential that existed for greater unity. Some unions were proponents of a single giant confederation. Others preferred a process of rolling mergers. A third group favored a federation of federations that would allow leaders to retain control of autonomous philosophies and of their own checkbooks and bank accounts. In 1985, after exhausting meetings in Soweto between the most tenacious seekers of unity, a critical mass of trade unions, including Fosatu and Ramaphosa's NUM, finally agreed to unite in a federation to be called COSATU. It was launched on the 1st of December of that year. The ultimate success of these talks were testimony to the fact that some unions' apparent differences were smaller than they initially seemed. Social movement unions already recognized the need for more robust organization and growing political oppression drove this home. Orthodox unions could not prevent community politics leaking onto the shop floor. In 1981, only a small minority of Fossatu activists would countenance any linkage between union and community struggles. By 1984... The Federation was able to support a student protest on the ground of members' obligations as parents towards their younger comrades. The ANC's SACTU ally and many UDF-aligned unions were, however, hostile to unity talks, which they believed would strip them of influence and resources. They feared for SATU's efficient organisers such as Alec Irwin and John Copeland and worried that the larger federation would swallow them up. Unity was pushed through against their wishes by the exile ANC, which remained true to its Green Book analysis and sought a single federation broadly under its own sway. The ANC sloganeered for one industry, one union, one country, one federation. Most exiles arguing that unity would bring power and gambling that any federation that emerged would fall under their control. In the event, the presence of Ramaphosa as the head of Kosatu's largest and most powerful affiliate was to prove a continuing source of concern for many in the ANC. At the start of the decade, Ramaphosa was still widely regarded as a Christian brother whose closest political affiliations were with the Black Consciousness Movement. It is quite possible that at the turn of the 1980s, he had still never knowingly met an ANC member. Yet, as the num grew, Ramaphosa began to recognise the need for wider union unity and he increasingly despaired of the inability of KUSA to participate constructively in the unity talks. In the 1970s, moreover, Cyril came to recognize some of the political limitations of black consciousness and he toyed with alternative instruments such as armed struggle and organized labor. His political and ideological commitment to black consciousness was always qualified, as was his commitment to any overarching philosophy that might obstruct pragmatic calculation. It was in his character to adapt his frames of understanding to changing circumstances only gradually, without fully relinquishing prior beliefs and principles. By August 1985, when the Kosatu show was more or less on the road and Cyril was in the driving seat, he firmly disclaimed any genuine commitment to black consciousness in his days at Turf At that stage it was the in-thing, It was in this context that he recalled his sudden conversion to the ideals of the Freedom Charter while in detention and his discovery that black consciousness was essentially a sectarian type of movement which tried to get black people to be on their own. These convenient retrospective denials of the influence of black consciousness are not fully persuasive. Certainly some of his friends and contemporaries who were to go on to play significant roles in the formation and politics of a Zapo, had no doubts about Ramaphosa's black consciousness philosophy. Moreover, he respected the key tenet of KUSA that leadership positions should be held by blacks and that whites should not influence the strategies and decisions of these black leaders. If Ramaphosa never underwent a sudden conversion to the Freedom Charter, he did nevertheless begin to act according to its premises. He was always a gradualist, embracing new perspectives and ideas while never fully abandoning the old, pragmatically ignoring unwelcome tensions within his complex system of political beliefs. When he turned to worldly politics, he never rejected the church. When he converted to non-racialism, he did not relinquish the hold of black consciousness philosophy on his view of the worth of black leaders. He was soon to embrace certain communist ideas while steering around their political implications, just as he was later able to become a financier and businessman without jettisoning his avowed socialist values. On some accounts, Ramaphosa's strength as a negotiator lay in his ability to act as a processor. He could secure agreement between bewilderingly diverse antagonists, a capacity that drew on his ability at any one time to accommodate and reflect on a wide range of contrary perspectives and beliefs within his own mind. Confronted at any time with the question, what does Cyril really believe, his colleagues and comrades would offer wildly differing answers. At the National Union of Mine Workers, Ramaphosa and Motlatsi headed the biggest trade union in the country and their views made a major impression on the character of Cosatu. The NUM was uniquely capable of bridging divides because it had avoided association with either workerist or political ideologies. Although it had initially been derided by Fosatu activists as having a mass character, NUM's high and growing levels of solidarity and shaft organisation demonstrated its organisational power. At the same time, the exceptional exploitation and racism to which its members were subject kept it highly and openly political in all its activities. During the unity talks preceding the formation of COSATU, Ramaphosa became a key broker in dialogue between unionists such as Joe Foster and Chris Lamini, the general secretary and president of COSATU, John Gomomo of the Metal and Allied Workers Union, and Jay Naidu, the General Secretary of the Sweet Food and Allied Workers Union. The broad agreement they reached about the nature of a new federation emphasized their points of greatest agreement, a goal of one union, one industry, expanded workers' control, representation in the federation on the basis of membership, cooperation in national-level actions, and non-racialism. This last issue seemed most problematic for NUM as a member of KUSA, but Ramaphosa and his lieutenants had already decided that the union's future did not lie with its founding federation. Shaw Kame's KUSA gradually estranged itself from the negotiating process, its demand for black leadership creating an insuperable barrier to unity with its pivotal Fasati rival. In its January 1985 Congress, NUM resolved to join a new federation, even if it had to do so without KUSA. Later in the year, KUSA withdrew from the unity talks over the issue of black leadership and Elijah Barai staged a walkout at the Cusa convention over this same issue. Ramaphosa chaired the final summit of the decisive June 1985 unity talks in Soweto, His performance was celebrated as tactful but forceful, and he became the inevitable choice as chair of Kusatu's launching conference scheduled for the end of November. At this hastily convened event, Ramaphosa's rhetoric steered a careful line between the demands of different affiliates. He set out the principle that the struggle of the workers on the shop floor cannot be separated from the wider political struggle for the liberation of this country giving support to the views of the political unions. Yet he went on to argue that if workers are to lead the struggle for liberation, we have to win the confidence of other sectors of society. But if we are to get into alliances with other progressive organizations, it must be on terms that are favorable to us as workers. Finally, he soothed orthodox fears, but upped the stakes simultaneously, by arguing that when we do plunge into political activity, we must make sure that the unions under Kusatu have a strong shop floor base not only to take on the employers, but the state as well. The leadership of the new federation also reflected its diversity. Jay Naidu from the Sweet Food and Allied Workers Union, a former black consciousness activist who valued Fosatu's organizational doctrines, was elected general secretary. NUM's own Elijah Barai was elected president, a position NUM earned through being by far the largest union in the federation. Significantly, Barai was the key ANC advocate in NUM. Radical for Satu leader Chris Tlamini became deputy president. Office holders also included the long-standing ANC activist and by 1985 probable SACP member Sidney Mufamadi, whose relationship with Ramaphosa, on some accounts at least, was soured by his own failure to organize mine workers in the early 1980s. In the middle of Ramaphosa's closing speech to the new federation, he remarked that, What we have to make clear is that a giant has risen. Edited by journalists, this was to become the famous slogan that is still recalled today at Kosatu Congresses, A giant has arisen. Ramaphosa had helped to create a federation that could serve as a vehicle for the ANC's ambitions. As the historian Vic Allen observes of his inaugural speech, it could have been written by the ANC. But while Kosatu held out great promise for the liberation movement, the prominence of Ramaphosa left many exiles uneasy. In Allen's judicious assessment, From 1985, Sura Ramaphosa was in full support of the ANC, though the ANC was not in full support of him.